What has been the number one cause of unnatural death in history? Democide, or death by government, has killed 290 million people on record. In the 20th century, government murdered four times as many people as were killed in all the international and domestic wars combined. It's time to realize the biggest threat to you and your family is government. It's time to recognize government is the greatest killer of all time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first chapter of Measuring the Mandates, Questioning the State's Response to COVID-19. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is the international version of a report I was involved in putting together for submission to an inquiry in my own country. The report is freely downloadable from my website. As indicated in the opening clip, this first chapter is about the question of state murder, or democide. This chapter actually opens with a quotation from political scientist Rudolf Rummel, who said, quote, Democide means for governments what murder means for an individual under municipal law. It is the premeditated killing of a person in cold blood, or causing the death of a person through reckless and wanton disregard for their life. End quote. I will come on to how this relates to the COVID-19 pandemic in a moment. One note before I begin, this chapter includes a lot of graphs, which obviously visually tell the story. I will work them into the various video versions. However, I'll also describe them. So if you're just listening, I think it will be fine. I would implore you to download the essay and look at them that way. Okay, we'll begin. For many people, any initial feelings of cynicism regarding the dangers of COVID-19 dispersed in April of 2020, when excess mortality figures suddenly spiked around the world. England and Wales experienced nearly 60,000 excess deaths during a three-month period, and a similar spike was visible across various European countries. The identification of a novel coronavirus had been announced by the world's media. Then suddenly, vast numbers of people started dying across multiple countries. Whilst correlation alone doesn't prove causation, surely this new virus must be the sole culprit for these deaths. Two voices that were early in cautioning against an unguarded leap to such a conclusion were Dr. Klaus Kurlein and journalist Torsten Engelbrecht. Kurlein and Engelbrecht are co-authors of the book Virus Mania, which critically examines the foundations and assumptions of virology. In an article published in October of 2020, they claimed that a comparison of excess mortality across countries actively disproved the viral hypothesis. They point out the striking contrast between neighbouring countries Spain and Portugal, where the former had 157% excess deaths, at the same time the latter's peaked at 21%. The same situation exists between Italy and Slovenia. During this initial period, Italian excess mortality peaked at 86%, whilst the Slovenian reached only 11%. Italy's excess was entirely concentrated in the north of the country, where Bergamo reached 1,000% excess. Germany also contrasts sharply with her high excess neighbours. Belgium's excess peaked at 105%, the Netherlands 70 whilst France hit 61 Germany's only reached 12% during this initial period. A similar picture emerges in the United States. At the time, New York was experiencing an over 130% increase in excess mortality, 
over 630% in some parts of New York City, neighbouring Vermont and nearby New Hampshire and Maine experienced little to no excess. Curline and Engelbrecht assert that, quote, a virus pandemic which afflicts countries so differently cannot actually exist, especially in today's times. End quote. Is this true? Curline and Engelbrecht provide no comparison to historical data to support their claim. Making such a comparison would also be difficult, due to the unprecedented steps taken to counteract COVID-19. We were truly living through unique times. The data is perhaps intriguing enough, however, to at least look and see if any other factors could have been feeding into the excess mortality. Out of concern for this situation, Klaus Kurline submitted a letter to a German medical journal stating, quote, In view of the fact that very different mortality rates are reported in different European countries, it is reasonable to assume that a different aggressive therapy could be responsible for this. End quote. Kurline and Engelbrecht focus on drugs trials, stating that, quote, This is why there can only be a non-viral explanation for this temporary massive excess mortality. And there is solid evidence that the massive and high-dose administration of highly toxic drugs plays a decisive role. Drugs that have been used in worldwide trials and also beyond these trials, costing the lives of tens of thousands of test persons. In the course of time, the patient supply dried up, which explains the rapid drop in the curves creating these prongs. End quote. In opposition to the viral hypothesis... This position has become known as the iatrogenic, or medically induced, hypothesis of COVID-19. In a paper supporting the iatrogenic hypothesis, Dr. Dini Rancor draws attention to comments made by World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros on March 11, 2020. When declaring a pandemic, he stated, quote, I remind all countries that we are calling on you to activate and scale up your emergency response mechanisms. Communicate with your people about the risks and how they can protect themselves. This is everybody's business. Find, isolate, test and treat every case and trace every contact. Ready your hospitals. Protect and train your healthcare workers. End quote. The COVID-19 virus is reckoned to have been spreading all over the world for months at this point. Yet there was no sign of excess mortality anywhere except possibly China. Immediately after the WHO declares a pandemic and makes reference to making hospitals ready, the death rate dramatically spikes in various European countries, US states and Canadian provinces. These spikes are unprecedented in both their scale and the fact that they take place outside of the usual flu season. They occur simultaneously in geographic areas separated by thousands of miles, yet not necessarily in neighbouring countries or even provinces. Various explanations have been offered as to how the virus could spread without noticeably affecting mortality rates, then suddenly transform itself into the worst killer in a century. None of these explanations can account for the WHO's seeming ability to predict the onset. Dr. Rancor proposes that it is far more likely that the excess mortality was due to the implementation of pandemic preparedness across the regions that suffered with it. I've inserted graphs into the presentation here which I'll describe, 
they're off the European and US excess mortality. So what we see is a kind of sine wave of excess mortality peaking each December-January time with the flu season, then falling into a trough in the summer. Just as the winter peak of 2019-20 is receding, suddenly there is this dramatic spike in March in both the US and Europe. And this dramatic spike comes immediately after the World Health Organization's announcement of a pandemic. It's quite visually striking. We will now examine what the various implications of readying hospitals were for excess mortality. Subheading. Denial of access to hospitals and other medical services. In October of 2020, Amnesty International published a report titled As If Expendable, the UK government's failure to protect older people in care homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. It makes for a truly harrowing read. Amongst many issues, the report highlights elderly people being refused medical care after the declaration of a pandemic. I'll now read a lengthy quotation. Amnesty International has received multiple reports of care home residents' right to NHS services, including access to general medical services and hospital admission, being denied during the pandemic, violating their right to health and potentially their right to life, as well as their right to non-discrimination. Care home managers have pointed out that such reluctance or refusal to admit older care home residents to hospital could not be explained by need, as hospital bed capacity was never reached. The problem was widely reported early on in the pandemic, and was seemingly exacerbated by guidelines published by NHS England on its website on the 10th of April, advising that some care home residents should not ordinarily be conveyed to hospital unless authorised by a senior colleague. The guidelines caused a controversy and were withdrawn a few days later, but the damage lingered. Official figures show admissions to hospital for care home residents decreased substantially during the pandemic, with 11,800 fewer admissions during March and April compared to previous years. The son of one care home resident who passed away in Cumbria said that sending his father to hospital had not even been considered. Now I'll quote the son from the report. From day one, the care home was categoric it was probably COVID and he would die of it and he would not be taken to hospital. He only had a cough at that stage. He was only 76 and in great shape physically. He loved to go out and it would not have been a problem for him to go to hospital. The care home called me and said he had symptoms, a bit of a cough, and that a doctor had assessed him over mobile phone and he would not be taken to hospital. Then I spoke to the GP later that day, who said he would not be taken to hospital, but would be given morphine if in pain. Later, he collapsed onto the floor in the bathroom and the care home called the paramedic. They established that he had no injury and put him back to bed and told the carers not to call them back for any COVID-related symptoms because they would not return. He died a week later. He was never tested. No doctor ever came to the care home. The GP assessed him over the phone. In an identical situation for someone living at home instead of in a care home, the advice was, go to hospital. The death certificate said pneumonia and COVID, but pneumonia was never mentioned to us. Okay, that concludes quoting the gentleman. I'll now return to quoting the narrator of the Amnesty report. Reduced possibility to send care home residents to hospital compounded another long-standing issue, that of care home residents' limited access to GPs, 
Obtaining access to GPs got markedly more challenging during the pandemic, as GPs throughout the country switched to phone or online consultations and stopped visiting care homes. NHS England advised GPs to begin the rollout of remote consultations on the 17th of March, prioritising vulnerable groups but limiting face-to-face consultation to only when absolutely necessary. However, Amnesty International received multiple reports from care home managers, staff and relatives of residents of doctors refusing to enter care homes and only being available for consultations by phone or video. This was the case no matter what the resident's symptoms were and even in regard to end-of-life support. The daughter of a care home resident who died in Liverpool described the lack of medical care her father experienced. Now to quote this lady's account. In the file, it said that Dad complained of chest pain on the 28th of March and asked to see a doctor, but there was no follow-up in the file. It also says that Dad had fallen on the morning of the 1st of May and banged his head and had a swelling. I was never told, and there is no record of a doctor being called for this. A carer told me that they had called the doctor, but he would not come in and had prescribed antibiotic and end-of-life drugs. Then I spoke to the GP and he said he suspected COVID or chest infection and that I should go see him. Dad died on May 2nd and a staff member told me she was there when he died and he was gasping for breath and holding his chest. End quote of both that particular lady and the amnesty report. It is self-evident that the withdrawal of medical care will cause excess deaths. It is also worthy of note that a GP was willing to prescribe end-of-life drugs over the telephone. Subtitle. Misuse of Do Not Attempt Resuscitation, that's D-N-A-R, forms. Amnesty quote Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights from September of 2020 as saying, quote, The blanket imposition of D-N-A-R notices without proper patient involvement is unlawful. The evidence suggests that the use of them in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic has been widespread. End quote. Amnesty goes on to report that Care home managers reported to Amnesty and to the media cases of local GP surgeries or clinical commissioning groups requesting them to insert DNAR forms into the files of residents as a blanket approach. Asked about a blanket approach to DNARs, one care home owner in the north of England told Amnesty... We had a letter to that effect from the practice. I refused to sign it and handled it like that. Another reported that they were asked to insert DNAR forms into a number of residents' files. A family from Lancashire told Amnesty that their relatives had been asked to sign a DNAR form without having understood what it meant. To quote the relative, The nurse from the GP surgery rang me to say they had decided mum is DNR. I asked why and she said, We did this across the home. And I said, no, this should be done on individual cases, and I don't agree to it. So I had it taken off. She also said that they would not take mum to hospital. And again, I said that this is something that would have to be decided if and when the need arose on the basis of the situation at the time. They had asked mum about the DNR, and she had agreed to it, but then I spoke to mum, and she had not really understood the issue. End quote. Subtitle. Discharge of patients from hospitals into care homes. Amnesty reports that, quote, On the 17th of March 2020, England announced the decision to urgently discharge patients, including those who were infected 
or who may have been infected with COVID-19, from hospitals into care homes and the community. This was among the most crucial decisions that adversely affected care homes across the country. According to the National Audit Office, this policy led to 25,000 people being sent untested from hospitals into care homes between the 17th of March and the 25th of April, putting at risk the health and indeed the lives of care home residents. The DHSC did not collect data on the extent to which care homes successfully isolated residents with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 and did not require local authorities to collect data either. The discharge of thousands of patients from hospitals to care homes in the days following the 17th of March was extremely rushed, leaving little or no time for consultations and assessments. A member of a hospital discharge team told Amnesty, We had five to six hundred empty beds and nobody coming into A&E, so there really was no need for such rushed discharges. A care home manager recalled, Families learned their relatives came to care homes on the spot. There was no time for them to discuss with hospitals or with us. Families had no chance to choose which care home. People's teeth and glasses went missing in the rush. End quote. In addition to infection risk, this also represents the denial of, presumably necessary, hospital care to thousands of elderly people. An action guaranteed to raise the death rate. Subtitle. Increased workload, reduced staffing levels, and removal of oversight for care homes. Compounding the medical problems, Amnesty's report identified how COVID regulations reduced the number of staff while increasing the workload on remaining ones. To quote the report, According to the National Audit Office, workforce shortages in the care sector pre-pandemic was already estimated at 122,000, and staff absence increased significantly during the pandemic, with absence rates in care homes between mid-April and mid-May 10% on average. They were considerably higher than this in certain care homes and areas. The lack of testing exacerbated this problem, as it was impossible to know if some of those self-isolating were COVID-19 free and could in fact work. Staff shortages in turn impacted the ability of care homes to adequately manage infections and the quality of care they were able to provide for residents, both those infected with COVID-19 and others. This was exacerbated by a situation where care home staff had to perform a number of additional tasks, from assisting residents to communicate with their relatives who could no longer visit them, to enforcing social distancing amongst residents unable to understand the requirement because of dementia, to cutting residents' toenails because chiropodists stopped visiting care homes. They also had to interpret and communicate residents' symptoms to GPs who were no longer visiting. End quote. This coincided with the removal of oversight from care homes, with the Care Quality Commission suspending inspections and family members being banned from visiting. Begin quote. Beginning on the 16th of March, the Care Quality Commission announced that it would be ceasing its routine inspections of homes, leaving open the possibility of visits in a very small number of cases where we have concerns of harm, such as allegations of abuse. In its announcement, the Commission said its primary objective was supporting providers to keep people safe, and so there would be a shift towards other, remote methods to give assurance of safety and quality of care. Notably, This decision meant that at a time when older people in care homes were at their most vulnerable, because of the virus and because those who usually advocated on their behalf could no longer visit them, 
the regulator was largely absent. End quote. Subtitle, In Other Countries. Reports from various countries experiencing high excess mortality at this time tell a similar tale. They were all engaged in isolating their elderly population and denying them medical care. In a report into the care home disaster in Sweden, the BBC quote a nurse as saying, They told us that we shouldn't send anyone to the hospital, even if they may be 65 years old and have many years to live. We were told not to send them in. In Spain, soldiers were brought into care homes and found residents dead in their beds, abandoned. In French homes, Reuters reported that bodies had been left decomposing in bedrooms. In Canada, the C2C Journal reported that, quote, Quebec's health ministry issued a directive on the 19th of March, barely a week after the global pandemic had been declared, instructing nursing homes not to send residents unless in exceptional circumstances. Conversely, hospital patients who were not in critical condition were either to be sent home or transferred to care homes. This practice was adopted in multiple jurisdictions, Quebec, Ontario, several US states, including New York and New Jersey, and in England. End quote. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's order to nursing homes to admit COVID-19 patients was found by the State Bar Association to have increased the death toll among residents. New York also made extensive use of ventilators, which are estimated to have killed tens of thousands of Americans unnecessarily. Subtitle. End-of-life drugs. In 2020, British journalist Jackie Devoy began documenting stories of people who contended their family members had been effectively murdered by the NHS through being involuntarily put on end-of-life pathways. This would be unbelievable had it not already happened within the past decade, with the infamous Liverpool Care Pathway being phased out as recently as 2014. Miss Devoy placed particular emphasis on the sedative drug Bedazolam, She documented family members' accounts in her film, A Good Death. The documentary is a harrowing yet informative watch, where family members back their observations with data regarding the doses of midazolam being administered. They highlight a paradoxical effect, where the drugs given to treat an ailment actually produce the symptoms of that ailment, leading to the delivery of more drugs. The following quotations illustrate the family's experience. I'll play some clips from the documentary directly into the podcast and I'll link to where you can watch the whole thing for free online. I'd highly recommend doing so. What do you think happened to your mum? What do you think she died of? Um, I think what happened was um, because they neglected her and they gave her a high dose midazolam and morphine that because it is a respiratory suppressor um, and they dehydrated her for such a long time that those drugs compounded and they were magnified in terms of, you know, potency. And because she couldn't get the oxygen, the drugs just obviously, she's just suffocated. You you could tell it was, um, it was orchestrated. The whole thing was, um, they knew what they were doing and they knew the end result. Why would you treat pneumonia with morphine and midazolam? I think if, you, if you've been told to withdraw all observations without telling the family, um, to me, that's, that's, um, it feels like that's murder by stealth. When and you tell other people this, they don't believe you, though. Um, 
Why do you think that is? Because it's the NHS. They're supposed to save people. What was the last thing she said to you? Do you remember? Yeah, she was saying, get me out of this hospital. They're trying to kill me. They're trying yeah. to kill me. If you slow somebody's breathing down, this is another uh, myth with the doctors, was, or even the pathologists, they'll say, oh, but there's fluid on the lung. Well, if you can't breathe, you can't respire. You can't get rid of the fluid. Mm. Um, a lot of what we breathe out includes water. If, if you slow the breathing down, you build up fluid on the lungs. That's not the and same as pneumonia. Yes, and you've just said it, and it fits in with the air hunger. So it's like a fish out of water, and that's a horrible way to... The idea that this is a good death is, is a myth that needs to be dispelled. What does it say on his death certificate that he died of? COVID-19 pneumonia. And what do you think he died of? Demodizola. The mainstream media is not addressing this issue, and they need to. Why do you think that is? I think because it's part of the narrative, and I think it conceals so many things that are happening. People who have actually died not of COVID, of being put on the end of care pathway. Um, and they are put into um, hospitals on red COVID wards. They show any sign of breathlessness, they're given this drug, and then the relatives are told they've died of COVID. And I think there's gonna be a huge problem in the country um, post COVID as well, because of these un unnatural deaths, but particularly with this abuse of these drugs, this is induced iatrogenic cause death. The fact that the medical examiner and the coroner won't look at any of my evidence and ignore the fact that the, um, the nurse has said, you know, we basically let her suffocate. Um, how, is that, how is that not murder? As we'll see in a moment, midazolam use in the UK dramatically spiked in April of 2020. Was this because so many people were dying of COVID? Or were people dying because of the increased use of a respiratory suppressant drug? In a presentation titled Euthanasia in the Pandemic, Dr John Campbell addressed this question by referring to the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, COVID Treatment Guidelines. Published on the 3rd of April 2020, the key line that jumps out in the Managing Breathlessness section is, quote, Sedation and opioid use should not be withheld because of an inappropriate fear of causing respiratory depression. End quote. Dr. Campbell questions whether a fundamental mistake was made in transferring the guidelines for incurable conditions onto a potentially completely recoverable one. He points out that if an opioid and a benzodiazepine, such as morphine and midazolam, respectively, are given together, they will have the effect of stopping the recipient breathing. I'll now play some sections of Dr. Campbell's presentation directly into this podcast. Again, the full thing will be linked to in the info box. Was this a fundamental mistake that they made, that they transfer guidelines for uncurable conditions onto a potentially completely recoverable condition? It could well have been the case, because if you give these two together, that stops people breathing. Opioids and benzodiazepines will depress uh, respiration. And given that a lot of these people that were breathless anyway had acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, and you suppress their breathing. So if you have a lot of fluid in your alveoli, you'll get a tachypnea, you'll breathe more quickly to try and compensate. And that can get you enough oxygen into your body to mean that you survive the acute episode. But if you give these drugs and you get respiratory depression, I don't think you need me to spell out the, the consequences of that. Um, not enough oxygen, tissue hypoxia, and um, 
and death would be the, the result. So that's what this seemed to do. This is the big question mark. So they said, consider an opioid and a benzodiazepine like midazolam combination for patients with COVID-19 who are at the end of life. But how many patients with COVID-19 would be at the end of life unless they had some intractable condition at the same time? And how do you know if they're at the end of life? I've, I've looked after hundreds of patients who think, good grief, they're, they're not very well. Um, but, but the vast majority of them uh, survive. With an infective condition, you can't really tell whether it's the end of life or not. How, how, how do you tell that with an infective condition? I'm not sure doctors, uh, GPs, certainly without sophisticated diagnostic testing facilities in the community, in the nursing home situation, will be able to tell that. And yet that was the that was the guideline. So how do you tell that the end of life? I'm not sure that you can. I don't think that you can. And, and have even so moderate to severe breathlessness. So some people even with moderate breathlessness. So people that might have looked ill but had a virus that their immune system could have overcome and they could have recovered could well have been given these uh, medications that resulted in suppressing their breathing. So, as I say, at the end of life, moderate to severe breathlessness are distressed. If someone's dying of an intractable condition, fine. If it's a reversible infection, perhaps not. And then the guidelines actually say this, and this is probably the most um, concerning part of this, really. Um, sedation uh, and opioid use should not be withheld because of fear of causing respiratory depression. It's almost like saying the respiratory depression is acceptable. Serious concerns over the NICE guidelines were raised as early as the 20th of April 2020 in a letter to the British Medical Journal signed by two professors and nine doctors. They warned, quote, The combination of opioids and benzodiazepines is used in specialist palliative care settings for symptom control and for palliative sedation to reduce agitation at the end of life. It takes great skill and experience to use palliative sedation proportionately so that extreme physical and existential distress are palliated, but death is not primarily accelerated. The NICE guideline states, sedation and opioid use should not be withheld because of a fear of causing a respiratory depression. If COVID-19 infection were uniformly fatal, this would be an acceptable statement. But for people not previously known to be at the end of life, there is potential risk of unintended serious harm if these medications are used incorrectly and without the benefit of specialist palliative care advice. Another concern is that the recommended doses for morphine and midazolam are sometimes higher than the current guidelines state for non-specialist use. End quote. As mentioned, vastly increased use of midazolam is apparent in two spikes in 2020, in April and December-January. And these spikes correspond exactly with when the spikes in excess mortality were occurring. In the report, I've placed the two graphs next to each other, and again, it's visually striking. This isn't limited to midazolam either. Dr. John Campbell demonstrates a spike in uses of drugs like haloperidol, which according to drugs.com is not approved for use in older adults due to risk of death. There is also evidence for increased midazolam use in Italy and Sweden. And I'll quote from the Israel National News, reporting comments from a Swedish professor of medicine, Professor Gustafsson. I'm sorry, I have no idea how to pronounce his first name. It's just a collection of consonants. Quote, Living in a nursing home is not a diagnosis. 
by itself, it can never be a medical basis for deciding whether to live or die. Professor Gustafsson said that nutrient-drip treatment, blood clot prevention, oxygen and bacterial pneumonia treatment with antibiotics would have helped the elderly. Instead, giving morphine and midazolam regularly to elderly people with lung infections is active euthanasia, if not something worse. Professor Gustafsson says, we gave up on the elderly who could have had a chance of survival. End quote. Subtitle. Decrease in antibiotic prescriptions. In 2008, none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci himself co-authored a paper on post-mortem studies of victims of the pandemic of 1918. The paper found that, quote, people who died of influenza during 1918 and 19 uniformly exhibited severe changes indicative of bacterial pneumonia. Bacteriological and histopathological results from published autopsy series clearly and consistently implicated secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria in most influenza fatalities. The majority of deaths in the 1918 influenza pandemic likely resulted directly from secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria. Less substantial data from the subsequent 1957 and 1968 pandemics are consistent with these findings. If severe pandemic influenza is largely a problem of viral bacteria co-pathogenesis, pandemic planning needs to go beyond addressing the viral cause alone. Prevention, diagnosis, prophylaxis and treatment of secondary bacterial pneumonia, as well as stockpiling of antibiotics and bacterial vaccines, should also be high priorities for pandemic planning. End quote. Given the prominence of Dr. Fauci's role during the pandemic, it is surprising that we haven't heard more about the dangers of secondary bacterial infections. What role have they played in COVID-19 deaths? In actual fact, prescriptions for antibiotics fell dramatically during the COVID era, once again in a manner that correlated with rising excess mortality. And here I've included a graph of antibiotic prescriptions in the UK. And what you see is it basically maps excess mortality where it spikes upwards in the wintertime, December, January, and then has a trough during the summer. Except in the winter of 2020 going into 21, where there is no spike. Winter prescriptions for antibiotics are lower than summer prescriptions for the previous two years. And this corresponds exactly with the spike in deaths seen at the same time. A similar situation is observable in the United States, where antibiotics prescriptions fell away in March of 2020 and didn't return to their 2019 levels until June of 2021. This data led Dr. Dini Rancor to propose, quote, It is not unreasonable to ask whether the logic has not been inverted. Is COVID-19 assignment an incorrect cause assignment for what is in fact bacterial pneumonia? If COVID-19 is largely misdiagnosed bacterial pneumonia using either a faulty PCR test or not using any laboratory test at all, or if co-infection of bacterial pneumonia is not appropriately recognised, or if bacterial pneumonia itself goes otherwise untreated while antibiotics are withdrawn, in circumstances where large populations of vulnerable and susceptible residents have suppressed immune systems from chronic psychological stress induced by large-scale socioeconomic disruption, 
then the state has recreated the conditions that produced the horrendous bacterial pneumonia epidemic of 1918 in COVID-era USA. End quote. Subtitle, Conclusion. The aim of this chapter has not been to demonstrate what caused the increase in excess mortality over the past several years. Instead, it has been to identify that multiple factors have been at play, and it is not easy, perhaps even impossible, to point to one of these factors as being causal. Perhaps Klaus Kohlein and Torsten Engelbrecht will ultimately be proven correct, that all excess deaths were iatrogenic. Maybe Dini Rancor's view that a virus was involved, but not necessarily a novel one, will win out. Maybe the deaths are a split between a novel coronavirus and iatrogenic factors. It is certainly far beyond the scope of this document to come down on any side of a line. What is well within scope is to propose that this question, the question of what caused the excess deaths, is undoubtedly one of the most important in the world right now. Without answering it, societies around the globe will be doomed to repeat the devastating mistakes of the COVID era. Thank you for listening, everyone. I've linked to the two presentations I drew directly from in the info box. Aside from that, everything else is footnoted in the report itself. So again, to sound like a broken record, I would implore you to go and download it. And thanks again for listening. Next time I will read out chapter two, which is an assessment of the efficacy and dangers of the mask mandates.